Yeah. I remember me and, me and D used to talk about this kind of stuff all the time, like what it's gonna be like when you get closer to your dreams. I didn't know much then, but probably tell you a little something now. Mr. Big Dreams, no tolerance Cut you at the house and have a holler since Get bored quickly He stayed grown, so the P.A.Tron Had to get poor quickly Ex-girl stripping, I can't stop her New girl tripping, but I can't drop her Cause I need something to balance out the fact That it's hard to find a woman when you talented and black When you hollering at labels and they silencing you back Cause you fail to thoroughly discuss some violence in your track Well, gunshot for the young y'all Only see this everybody else then this one And that's it. Yo, I just want to start off by saying one thing, right? I got to look at the camera. I got to take my glasses off for this. Like, I don't I don't really think that there's been like two two dudes from Bridgeport. 203, man. 203, right? Like, hear what I'm saying here. Like, two dudes coming from Bridgeport going against those odds. I'm going into the mental health field and looking to do what needs to be done, right? And for that reason, like I had to get this dude on the pod because this dude is, <laughs> yeah. Let me let me start by saying this. My guess is, can 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 I can I just flaunt those credentials for a bit? Listen, dude, like, we get that we go to school for them. So <laughs> that that's it, right? <laughs> Listen. Today on the podcast, I got my good friend, Sean Mansfield, LPC, licensed professional counselor from Bridgeport. From Bridgeport. Originally from Bridgeport. You've been there your whole life? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm living in Stratford now, but uh, 25 years easily. 25 years. 25 years, man. We old. University of Bridgeport, Central High School, all schooling, master's programs. So, yeah, Bridgeport. From a community standpoint, educational standpoint, mm. it's in me, even though I'm not here as much. Yeah, what's up, Bridgeport? I'll be telling Bridgeport, all my all my peoples out there to stop being shy and get, get yourself on this podcast because I want to explore your mind. I want to explore your thoughts. I want to ask you some questions and we want to talk some mental health. So get in touch with me, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode five of the Mental Health Cafe podcast. And I got here my guest, LPC. Sean Mansfield. Glad to be here, man. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, yeah, LPC, six years, seven years. Uh, the time escapes me, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I did the undergrad, University of Bridgeport 2014, uh, Bachelor of Psychology. Took that two years, master program, University of Bridgeport, clinical mental health counseling, master's. This, uh, you know, my back then, 3,000 hours, got my LPC. And wearing them three letters after the name as much as I can and uh, signing treatment plans with it, signing mm -hmm. checks with it, you know, whatever it's got to be. So it's exciting. And it's crazy how, how fast time goes and uh, how long ago that's been. And, and now to feel like a little little seasoned veteran a little bit in, in this yeah. world, which is, which is crazy to say. I want to say, you know what, like the most generic question to ask is why? Like what made you chase that route? Like what made you go into saying that I want to be a LPC? Because quite frankly, I mean, I'll share a little bit about myself. I think the podcast kind of knows uh, my background, but what led you to that profession? 
it's gonna sound nerdy, and you, know, you probably know this of all people, but I'm a I'm a science guy, right? So if we were talking, you know, why does it why does it rain? Why does the cloud produce rain or something? There's a scientific answer, and what that answer is escapes me. I don't know if you don't want to answer that, right? So I look at a social science and say, why do people behave or do or think whatever it is as they do, and to, to bring it back to Bridgeport for a second, right? We've seen violence. We've seen violence uh, from an experiential standpoint, witnessing violence, right? Fractured homes, how we feel about the politics of Bridgeport, all that. So the, all these different things have a level of psychology to mm-hmm. it, right? Um, and so when I found myself, when I, wanted, when I was doing a science major, it was biology at one point, I wanted to be a dentist, but it was just more like trying to figure out, you know, I didn't want to do like animals and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. So I got into psychology just to understand like a little bit of just, just everything. Like why, why does this athlete do this certain ritual before is a psychological component, right? Mm-hmm. Why does Luigi Garcia want to launch a podcast? There's a psychological component, right? Why do I bite my nails? A psychological component. Mm-hmm. So you can take just about anything from anyone and maybe find a really important foundation or important understanding or a core value, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to take it from the license perspective, withstanding LCSW, LMFT, LADC, even as well, I always thought LPC was the most um, adaptable. Yeah. So social work and, and without having that license, so I could be misspeaking. Um, there's a lot of like policy and things of that nature that you need to kind of know about comes up on your test. Licensed marriage, family therapy, LMFT, obviously marriage and family, more of a collective unit, LADC licensed addiction counselor. So you focus almost exclusively on addiction and substance use where I felt like LPC kind of gives you all of that. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm knowing policy, I'm working in substance abuse. I could be working with families. I guess the ultimate Swiss army knife, if you want to think of it that way. And when I spoke to my professors, I actually wanted to be an LMFT. I thought couples and stuff, but I can do that now with LPC. Right. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. This is me talking 2014, 2015, making those decisions. Now we got LPCA. Like the the field is so much more even. Like yeah. when I started, you couldn't even work in a hospital. Like hospitals are now accepting because they just wanted social workers for whatever reason. Now I could go work at a hospital as an LPC. So again, maybe out the gates, it wasn't like the the fancy me. Like LCSW social work tends to be like the traditional one, if you will, from my experience, and people I know who've gotten their license. Uh, but LPC, man, I feel like I could be playing on a different team. I could be working in a population. I have that mental health, yeah. clinical background where it's just that applies to name the population kind of thing. So yeah. um, never regretted it. Yeah, Never had second thoughts about LMFT, yeah. LEDC, uh, LCSW. Um, and I'm a big proponent of get the LPC. Yeah, like People come to me, well, what should I do? And I tell them, sure, you know, I think LPC to this day, is the most adaptable kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, even though we all might work in the same positions and stuff, but I think even the training and the mental health focus, yeah, and you don't got to worry about policy and certain things like that, or family and structural therapy, all that. You can learn all that stuff through trainings and just experience. Right. Um, I'm a big fan LPC. If you ask me, LPC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. If you ask Sean, LPC. And you know what? It's not even like a knock against anyone um I know we have a lot of listeners that are in the social working field. And even for myself, Sean, like I'll tell you, um, my first 
I want to say just uh, mentors and just supervisors mm-hmm. in the field. Mm-hmm. They're LCSWs. Yeah. And there's definitely a different way or a different therapeutic leadership shown by them. Mm-hmm. And, um, wow. It's like anybody that has the guts to really take on that responsibility mm-hmm. to go into mental health and get the education that's required for the field is mm-hmm. definitely deserving of so much respect. Mm-hmm. And I'll say for the, the social work, you know, that, that that's the core piece social work, right? These are people or, or people who've chosen that route who are like masters, wizards of referrals and knowing community programs and establishing programs. So they're really the ones that kind of got this field to a place where it's like recognizable. Like to this day, people ask me, well, what do you do for work? If I say therapist, like, oh, you do physical therapy? Like what practice? You mm-hmm. Therapy mm-hmm. is interchangeable. I say social work. Oh, okay. They know exactly what I'm doing. So it also has that understanding of like, okay, you're helping people. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you say therapy, I said, no, I'm a mental therapist. I'm a shrink, whatever it is kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. um, I think it's super important license, very, um, rigid programs to get into LPC is not too far behind. I would say at least to get in my experience. Right. Um, but yeah, for me, the difference was therapy and then I know LCSWs who can out therapy me, you know, this isn't a competition. Cause I think again, the, the state, let's speak of state of Connecticut is really evening out the licenses, which is great. Right. You, know, you shouldn't have to feel, well, I want to work in a hospital. This right. person has these four letters versus my three. Right. You know, we really want to expand it. Like people want to help people if you're coming into this field. So as long as you're able to help appropriately treat people, right. Equitable, all that stuff, then open up those doors. And like, you know, a lot of folks struggle with this job and they, they come into it. They want to get out of it. They, they're in it. They feel certain ways about it for, for different reasons. Um, so if you really power through, get your licenses and you see yourself, like last thing you want to do is be like, man, I really want to work in a school, but man, I got the LPC and da, 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 da kind of thing. So mm-hmm. I'm glad the landscape's finally starting to feel like yeah. it don't matter who you, what your letters are, it matters who you are as a, as a professional, right. as a practitioner in yeah. whatever setting you're working in and stuff. And what do you, like, what do you think happened in the last, because I want to say this happened anywhere between the last five to 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. Where this profession is really just taking off. Yeah. I mean, just the mental health field in general. I mean, I know different states have different um, letters for what they call their LPCs. Sometimes they're called like LPCCs or LCCs. Each state would have their own regulations for that. But I guess my question is, what do you think happened these last 10 years that has really kicked off the mental health career in general? Like what's happened? Have people just got up and wanted to go to therapy? Because I'm not sure if... And of course, we don't have the research to in front of us to kind of go based off just just like a subjective um, opinion of what you think happened. I would say that society has started to normalize mental health. And you think celebrities, I think of Michael Phelps, Olympian swimmer, you you know, who however much money this guy's made in his career Mm as a gold medalist. So I got depression. Like anybody else kind of in this world, and he has crippling depression days. He don't want to get out of bed. You know, I'm paraphrasing here again. I have this mm-hmm. full story in front of me. I think of Chrissy Teigen, who mentioned she had an alcohol problem. 
Um, a lot of people have substance abuse issues that aren't, you know, Joe Schmo on the block that you mm-hmm. kind of noticeably maybe panhandling or something like that. It's professional people who struggle with a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say for state of Connecticut, all those more substance, we have our opioid crisis, right? Mm-hmm. It's affecting other places in the country, but you know, you got the, the major players in Stanford. I'll leave their name out, obviously. But, um, and so you started to see a lot of folks have a lot of problems. And I think people just started to expand the conversation like, and Sean can't get through a school day without, you know, punching and stuff like what's going on at home used to be the question or, you know, what's his IQ? We started to do those types of things. And maybe what it came down to is I'm having emotional reactivity problems. I don't know how to deal with my emotions. And so I think as we started as a society to look at again, like why are people behaving the way they are? And not just saying, oh, you got, you're the smart kid. I'm the dumb kid. You got right. the good genes. I got the bad. Are you from Bridgeport? I'm from this place. Right. Right. Thing. Right. You expand the conversation. I think people started to say, wow, you know, if I actually know how to self-regulate and have coping skills, I can actually get to a school day. And mm-hmm. it was more of that personable, um, treatment oriented effect where I think people started to say, oh, wow, like mental health isn't just depression, anxiety, bipolar. Like these are all diagnoses and stuff, but. Sometimes it is, you know, food insecurity and we need to get people access to food. And now I'm not hungry in school, so I'm getting through my school day focus kind of thing. Mm. So you just, I think it, it started to expand. And now 2023, it's just picking up. I think people in the field are, especially the, the LPCAs and stuff, they're right. motivated. But right. I think there's a, a new motivation of like, people are anxious. I'm anxious taking tests. Like people just start to really attune to their feelings and Mm -hmm. think about, man, why do I do the things that I do? And there's this field where not only you can have that self journey and you could go into therapy for yourself, but also be helping folks who don't have access to care and some of this other stuff. So I think, you know, that's where we're at. I think the nursing field kind of was always like the hub kind of thing. I want to help people treat people. And then when we brought it over to a mental health, a lot of people really wanted to connect through that um, mm. avenue as well. Wow. That's, um, that's, that's so much to consider yeah. just because it's, um, you know, and, and, you know, we, we both have similar experiences working with, um, I know you mentioned, uh, the school age children yeah. Yeah. and, oh, let me tell you what a ride. <laughs> I'm still going through it. I want to just say that working with adolescents, working with younger children in a, in a therapeutic space has to be one of the most challenging tasks that you can possibly pick up as a person looking for a profession to do. Mm -hmm. And if it's something that you're doing for the rest of your life or maybe for a period in your life, um, what was that like for you? I mean, you're sitting with someone's child yeah, and you're doing therapeutic work with them. Yeah. In the home back back then too, which added a dynamic for sure. Mm. I think that adolescence and it gave me an opportunity to work with them to reflect, right. They're just inundated with so much stuff, man. Like you go to school, like we could talk about Bridgeport. I worked in another a separate town city that had a lot of the, the similar makeup of Bridgeport we have a high school man, 3000 kids all under one roof. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people on roof. Right? Yeah. And you as a single person trying to get through class, get through lunch, 
get through the fights, get through the teachers who retiring, you know, all the stuff that comes with it. Right. So that's where the kids, the adolescents spend most of their time mm. and they come home and they're at that age where it's like, man, I ain't trying to make my bed. I ain't trying to be here. I want to go to the mall. I want to be with my friends. Right. Some of them start dating and saying, you know, so their sexual health and stuff like that. So the, the, the adolescents were tough because they're just inundated with so much stuff. Yeah. And that's not even talking about social media. Like, you know, it's everything. I, I purposely didn't say that because that adds a whole nother level of dynamic these days, even when I was doing it a few years back. Um, and I think the adolescents nowadays just it's hard for them to find a proper release because they're so dependent upon somebody else. Right. Yeah. So if you're 14 years old and you really want treatment, you need somebody to drop you off. Yeah. You need your parent, a loved one, an older sibling, whoever it is. Right. And what if, you, if they can't make that time for you? Not that they don't want you to go, but they got to pick up extra shift. So they have a, a lack of resources available just naturally at their age. Right. Someone who's 19 maybe drives himself or is more knowledgeable on the bus route, whatever right. it is, or just has a job to, to be able to afford an Uber or whatever it is. Um, I think that would used to be the biggest challenge. Like these kids were trying to, these adolescents were trying to figure out I'm 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 12 through 17. Who am I? And then who am I in these, in the school system? Who am I at home? Who am I in my larger community? And we've been through that stuff too. Right. Mm -hmm. And that could go so many different ways. And then you mentioned the treatment. We're talking about just your standard for that part, right? Standard adolescent. Now what happens if you got trauma? Now what happens if you lost a parent? Now what happens if you don't have, you have food insecurity, right? You're going to be homeless. You're adding so much stress and so much uncertainty to already a, a very unique time in your life. I mean, that's asking, you know, for a lot for an adolescent to endure. It is, it is. And you mentioned, um, mixing in trauma, right? Yeah. And that's actually something that, um, you know, working as an intensive outpatient provider, myself um and my team were actually the front line for that so mm -hmm. it's working with adolescents that have been raped yep. Yep. or or they have experienced um a parent losing their life or being in the middle of a domestic mm -hmm. um, siblings incarcerated i'm sure uh, you, you name it yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the psychosocial factors just go like beyond like uh so so many things and just the um the stressors of their environment right we talking mm -hmm. about living in the inner city and the psychological effects that that has mm -hmm. and another thing that i'm seeing also is just um you know it's a different time to be a, a teenager oh yeah these days oh, yeah. you know these days it's just you know, these kids are, I, I remember I was going back and, and we're not, we're not guys. We're not saying like, we're going back 50 years, right? We're only talking going back 13, 15 years. Um, you know, the drugs were around, the alcohol was around, but these days you go to a, a school and it smells like somebody just baked the whole hallway out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And without saying any names of schools in particular, but I do make these school visits and I do go around the Bridgeport location and I see these schools and it's just, it, it's taken a downward turn. Yeah. I think the, the tough piece for adolescents, like, so I think about 
when I was, what, 12 to 17. And, and you might remember this, Luigi. I'm talking about MySpace and stuff, man. Yep. I got a page. I'm over here looking for a little Bow Wow song to put it on so I can, you know, get some likes and some hits. <laughs> the first yep, cell yep. phone I had was a flip phone. It wasn't no internet. Yeah. These kids now, I got a little brother who's turning 13 this year in September. Man, he could fire up his phone to find out what's the time in Japan if he's really interested, right? He could find out what Patrick Mahomes had for dinner if he's interested, right? So they their access piece is immense. Like, yeah. you know, there was a lot more fumbling around to try to do things we wanted to do where now you pull out a phone and, and you could Google stuff and you go on Twitter and you got TikTok. And I'm not anti-social media by any means, but... um the inundated man like it's left and right I, I work in substance abuse now and i'm always talking to to right. folks probably in their 40s 50s or whatever it is and sometimes younger yeah and i say to them i literally say this like you know raise your hand if if your drug of choice is alcohol you get a handful of hands and i say hey raise your hand if your drug of choice is, is alcohol and you struggle with uh gummy bear pinnacle vodka nobody hand goes up and i'm like wait y'all never tried it like i'm making jokes and stuff right and I say to them, do you remember when you was adolescent, that was marketed to you, right? Because who likes gummy bears? Adolescents and kids. I mean, adults too, but right. Like, why do we have all these different flavors? And I'm just speaking about alcohol, of course, right? Um, it's to set you up, man, right? To get you involved earlier and earlier and stuff. And it's much easier to get things these days, right? Like, since I started getting my license, I'm going to use alcohol for a second. It wasn't at the grocery store when I first getting started. It's there now, right? It wouldn't surprise me. There's delivery services now. I wasn't like it was back in the day, right? So there's just a lot of stuff. And then we talk about cannabis or weed, marijuana. Um, like you said, there were pockets of it. Like if you, you could find it back in the day if you know what it is. But now it's just like the dispensaries and like, yeah, you're supposed to be 18, 21. I forget the law, but... We teenagers, yeah. man. Teenagers know how to find every loophole and fine print and who to talk to. And these kids going through stuff and they may not be in treatment or want to do treatment, but you know what they want to do? Smoke some weed so that I don't got to worry about that I ain't brushed my teeth today. I'm about to walk in the high school because I'm going to smell like a pound of weed and then everybody going to leave me alone. So all again, behavior piece, right? Why, why is someone smoking so much? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And my thing is to like for the listeners, um, I don't I don't want to make it seem like I'm attacking weed. I mean, I used to smoke weed like I was the biggest stoner. Mm-hmm. Like it, it was I had a time in my life where it was just like and to this to this day, like it's not part of my life, but I still don't have an issue with it. Yeah. What I do have an issue with is this. Um, you're 15 years old and you're smoking all these pounds of cannabis into your blood, into your brain. That's not fully developed yet. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's not even something that's up for debate. It's a fact, right? It's a scientific fact. Mm -hmm. Your, your brain isn't fully developed into your late twenties. Right. And when you're working with, different components such as anxiety, depression, or you're taking antidepressants, antipsychotics, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and you're mixing in all of those things 
I can't count. And for the basis of confidentiality, you know, I can't, I can't say exactly the situation, but I can say that I cannot, I would lose the amount of, uh, fingers and toes in the world when I tell you that there's so many people that complain about something such as ADHD mm-hmm. and they're taking their medications and they're saying that it's not working while you're smoking a pound of weed every day mm-hmm. or you're taking another medication for something else. You're doing a medical intervention and it's not working, but you're smoking weed, man. You're, yeah. you're combining mm-hmm. these drugs that are not meant to be combined. Mm-hmm. And you hit the nail on the head from a developmental standpoint there. There's the studies out there that the developing brain is the most challenging with cannabis. Someone who's an adult just decides to smoke a pound of weed might not have the same effects because your brain's a little mm-hmm. bit more normalized. There's kind of a debate. Can you get addicted to cannabis or not? But that's relevant for today. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's quantity. Yeah. You know, it'd be one thing if a 15 year old at night took a blunt or a toke or something like that to go to bed. You know, why at 730 in the morning, right before you go into school, you are taking a pound of weed and then you're going to get out of school. If you make it through the school day and take another pound of weed and then you're going to go hang out with your buddies who also are going to be passing them. So it's an all day event. And the core question would be, Hey man, what's up? What's going on? Right? Like not, no judgment. Just what, what is going on? It, it seems like you need to, do you need to get through the school day? Are you feeling insecure about yourself? Is there a self-esteem problem? Cause it's like you said, right? If I smell like a pound of weed, people not going to come up to me and, Oh, you smoking that? Da, 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 right. They're going to be interested in that stuff. And now all of a sudden you got the pressure off yourself. Mm-hmm we got to figure out what's going on because what's going to happen is you're going to get used to that right? mm. over and over. And then you get older and older. And then what's going to happen? Like you're going to be dependent upon weed without the therapy piece or without working on yourself. And if I said that about, if I had McDonald's every day and I eat that every day and don't work out, it's going to catch up. Right. So this isn't a judgment. Like you said, on weed, this is a judgment of why are we choosing to do something every single day exactly. without discussing. Right. Why are we doing this? What's going on? Exactly. And it's the choice. I mean, we can replace mm-hmm. it just like you said, Sean, we can replace the marijuana topic with um, any uh, any impulsivity. I mm-hmm. mean, you can even tie it to, you know, I've been seeing so much research late, lately on pornography use mm-hmm. with um, and the addiction mm-hmm. that it causes with men mm-hmm. and reading about these things that it's it's so toxic to the brain that it changes your, it causes distortions and you're no longer seeing reality for what it is. Mm -hmm. So it's ruining marriages. It's ruining relationships and there's no control of the behavior. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like that, that impulsivity. And I'll say too, with pornography, right. One of my favorite things and, Self-disclosure, I watched porn before, so oopsie-daisy, right? <laughs> um, you know, it's always, you know, I'm going to take my pants off in the middle of a laundromat, and all the women are going to tell me, oh, my God, you know, and they have this reaction. <laughs> hey, man, try to go do that at your local laundromat. You're going to have the, the police walking you up out exactly, of there. Yeah, right? Yeah, so, you know, yeah. there's all these fantasies that they create. and like, oh, I'm going to go see the neighbor who needs a bottle of lemonade, and she's going to be me. And then you take that information again every day, every night, yeah. even less than that. 
Now you're trying to have a, a romantic relationship. I'm in a romantic relationship. I'm married. You think every time I get naked, my wife is like, oh, but hey, look, you know what I mean? Absolutely not. But if I was so conditioned to think this is what it is, right? I get naked. I get rewarded for how I look and all that stuff. And then I get sex. That's a problem. Right. And then you take that to adolescence. Sometimes that's where they first learn about sex. Or again, we talk about just the exposure piece. It's not hard to find porn. It's not hard to find nudity. It's not hard to find porn and nudity. And it's not hard to find your fetishes. Which again, no judgment to anybody. We're just talking about access piece for a second. Right. Now I'm going to school. I really want sex. That girl, I like her, that guy, whatever your preference is. Also no indictment on sexuality. But all I've learned is let me get naked. And she's going to tell me, or he's going to tell me, oh, you got this size, this, and that size, that. And we get down and somebody says, no, and I don't know about consent. So what do I do? Oh, I'm going to go get high mm -hmm. because I just got rejected. Mm -hmm. And now I feel like, wait, wait, ain't this how it works? I'm supposed to just, you know, tell yeah. her, let me see your big, this big, that. And she's supposed to comply. Yeah. But porn don't tell you like, yeah. you know, there's something called consent. Like yeah. obviously they're, paid and they're, you know, they're doing that for work. So it's a little different, but right. you're not going to learn consent right. from pornography. You're not going to learn what it is to say no from pornography. Yeah. You're not going to know yeah. about your own sexual health and positions and like the, the nuances and stuff like that. And the, they don't realize that it's clips, right? Yeah. So if you're watching a, a pornography clip, it, it could be an hour long, but each clip could be a duration from two to three weeks. Mm -hmm. Right. So now mm -hmm. they have this expectation of I need to last long. But then in reality, mm -hmm. they go into the activity and they notice that this is different. Right. Mm -hmm. Or facing pressures mm -hmm. of performing. I know um, performance anxiety, it's a big mm -hmm. component of that also. And they jump in to, to substitute some of my experience. You know, there's something called, and it's called this dope dick where I'm going to take opioids, I'm going to take heroin, I'm going to take Percocet, I'm going to take some opioids to have a longer lasting effect. And then you say, oh, well, why do you want to do that for? And then when you talk to these usually men, because it has more of an effect on the, the male genitalia, they're saying, well, you know, I didn't want to be done in two minutes. I didn't want to be, you know, this partner, this person thinking me like that. Even if it's casual sex, right? So they're just meeting up at the motel or something. They had such high anxiety about like, I had to be long, strong, go for 50 minutes, or I'm not a man. And where did they learn that stuff, right? You scale it back and it's like, yeah, I started watching porn when I was like 13 years old. And you know, that's what I saw, right? Yeah. Like, I, she got to tap out first and yeah. I got to, you know, keep going and keep going. She got to come back to me. And then when you have that conversation, if you're able to get there, right. it's a very vulnerable one to be like, you know, I'm actually pretty insecure about my size. I'm actually insecure that I don't know how to, like you said, perform sex without being high right. or I would buy these, my partner cocaine, like all this like nuance to avoid and hide and stuff. Um, and a lot of stuff, man, starts adolescence. Sometimes things happen later on in life, but that adolescent period is so crucial, man, for a lot of things. And, and you know, you know, Sean, I know you mentioned that you've always been the science, the scientific type, mm -hmm. right? And, and it's totally okay if you don't have, um, like an answer supported by research. I'd rather have a subjective answer anyway. Okay. Um, neurological, I mean, that has to do something to your brain. You know, when you're an adolescent, you get used to this behavior. Rather it be um, 
you know, taking a drug for sex or mm-hmm. doing, I'll stick with the sex topic, right? And then now you're a 50 year old man and maybe you indulged in that behavior all the way into your 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, that has to do something to the brain, to so like, how do you stop that? Like, absolutely. I would say. For adolescents, we talked about the developing brain, right? We're learning a lot about ourselves, who I am, that identity piece. I mean, I know you've seen that with what you do for work. Any therapist has seen that with anybody. We all have an identity, right? Like, I'm on this podcast. I want to make sure that I'm, you know, a good speaker and all this stuff. I'm trying to present an identity, right? Um, it's a crucial time with independence, Right. Am I going to live in my family? Am I going to get to be able to drive? Do I get my first job, my first legal job? Like, you don't know, say if you work at a corporation or something like that. Um, is it going to be my first relationship? Right. You know, you had a boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it is, like when I was nine or something like that for Valentine's Day. But this is, you know, somebody you might finally fall in love. Sometimes happens in adolescence, right? All these different things and how someone learns all that stuff is going to set up how they do as an adulthood, if that makes sense. Right. Mm-hmm. So if I'm having performance anxiety at 15 and I'm trying to get drunk and I'm doing all this stuff, I've learned that and I'm conditioning myself, sex, alcohol, sex, drugs, sex. They could be working out first because I want to build testosterone, right? But if you can't just be comfortable within yourself, we're all learning. It's just human nature for a second, right? We're all subjected to what we like to do and how we do things, right? Creatures of habit, everyone, human nature, right? But when you influence drugs and stuff, your creature habit becomes drugs. And then what happens is mm. you got the drug use or alcohol, mm. name it. And what's been underneath that performance anxiety. Wow. But what's happening is you keep using, oh, get more addicted, more addicted, addiction come in. Oh, now you, you, you're addicted, you got to detox, all the stuff that comes with it, right? And then we got to go all the way back at 50 years old to talk about this is all for performance anxiety, right? Wow. And those are those light bulb kind of moments. However, yeah. I just gave you a pristine way of therapy, right? <laughs> that someone comes in, works through stuff, and we didn't talk about anything else going on in their life, right? Their job, their loved ones, their health, right? So that's the thing I also like about therapy is one topic, right? In this case, performance anxiety could help them in one area of their life. But if they learn the skills to deal with their performing anxiety, maybe it's self-acceptance, maybe it's, again, a body image thing or something like that. Once you learn the skills in one thing, you can adapt it to other areas of your life. Right. And maybe, in this case, performing anxiety creates a higher self-esteem. Maybe now you're seeking that job you always thought you couldn't get. Right. Chasing relationships, you feel that are more robust than just looking for, you know, I want the most attractive person because of my sexual preferences and stuff like that. Right. Stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it, it's a crucial year, crucial 12 to 18, <laughs> sometimes the 11 to 19, depending, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's such a crucial time. Um, and it sounds like, um, it sounds like a lot of substance um, abuse work, um, is externalizing the problem, right? Everyone's using for a reason, right? No matter the drug of choice, the method, right? So someone who's even using fentanyl, which is popular these days, what's going on? It's not whether it's guys, girls, kids, adolescents, right? We all do something for a reason, right? I drink a gallon of water a day. You say to yourself, well, what's the reason, right? Because I want to do something healthy. 
there's times I don't eat a vegetable. There's times I'm eating grease. But to me, it's like this could be the one area where I'm not going to drink soda, all these other things, right? Where I could be healthy. I just explained one process, right? What if I said I drink that much alcohol a day, right? There's a reason behind that. What that is, it could be, we can speculate, right? It could be trauma. It could be, um, I just got laid off from work. It could be, I'm in active addiction. I've been drinking since I was 12 years old. No one's ever told me it was a problem. Cultural stuff, right? I'm from a particular area in the country where you start drinking at five years old. I didn't real. no one ever told me I was an alcoholic, whatever it is. So we all start. There's always a foundation, right? That that's the nerdy part of me, right? Like what, what and that's why I say, like, people think of therapy sometimes like, hey man, what's going on? Just what's going on? And when you lay that foundation on the question, it's so open ended, right? Luigi, what's going on? You know, you know, I'm not feeling so good today. Mm-hmm. I had a really good day, actually. You know, Luigi, I didn't take my psych meds today. You know, I asked that girl out I was telling you about, or I asked that guy out I was telling you about, and they told me no. I feel down about today. Right. I'm just giving you all adolescent stuff, right? Like, obviously, you get a little bit older. I lost my job, right? My kid doesn't want to talk to me, right? Financially, I'm not where I want to be in my 30s. You hear a bunch of different problems, right? And it's all going back to how do we rise and how do we respond to our perceived issues and issues that we're going through. That is, um, that those are the realities of how most people approach therapy, right? Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned something very, um, very, very, uh, powerful there when you, when you say that, you know, let's just talk about what's going on and start there because, you know, I've been told by a lot of mentors in this field, yourself included, and I'm actually going to get into that story of how I, um, pursued a path into the mental health field because it has it has something to do with my guests here. Um, and I'll go into that before just saying that, you know, just asking a simple question like that is therapeutic. Like, Hey, what's going on? Absolutely. You know, a simple question and there's, it's, it's great to plan, but the great mentors in this field that I've met clinical psychologists, um, LPCs, uh, C's and LMFTs, mm-hmm. they've always told me one thing, um, when I started to embark on my journey towards becoming a therapist, and that was to not have a plan. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. having a plan is risky because you don't know what you're walking into. Yeah. Right. So yeah. what do you, when you hear that and you're running your groups, like, is there planning that goes on? Is there structure? Like, what do you usually do to start your work week for all the groups that you have on your schedule? So I keep, I find it helpful. And now this is particular to what I do for work. So I don't know how adaptable, right? So find things you can talk about passionately that are relative to your clients, right? So I'm dealing with substance abuse, right? So, of course, I have sheets on relapse prevention and coping skills and triggers and people, places and things and 12 step, you know, all this stuff and stuff. You know what else I have a group on? Stigma. And I talk about stigma because a lot of folks are being told you're an alcoholic, you're an addict, you're going to be the the black sheep of the family. Right. And I've had really strong groups going outside the ball, going outside the, the addiction topic, because that's also what affects people. 
now this came with some experience and stuff, right? It's fresh out the gates. I'm like, all right, I'm going to be the master of triggers and coping skills and stuff like that. And it took a level of comfortability to be like, and people don't, don't want to hear the book stuff all the time. Like people been in treatment before, like, and you don't, it's inauthentic, right? To an extent, like, oh, like I remember I, I was talking to a coworker in the past. Now I was like, listen, I'm really into CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Long story short, how you think and how you behave is it connected, right? Right. And I said, this is how your sessions are going to go. Hey, what's going on? He's like, well, I didn't learn that in a book. And I was like, ain't that the question you're trying to ask though? Mm. Right. Cause if you sit there and say, Oh, I saw you got suspended from school, you know, uh, this is your fourth suspension. When you go to factual or you go to buy the book, Hey, tell me that emotion you had after you got suspended and why you behave like that. Who want to answer that question? <laughs> you know what I mean? But when you say something open-ended, Hey, tell me how to go to that. It's just let it all out. Your subjective. I, I know how your parents feel. If I'm working with kids, right? I know how this person feels and how your probation officer feels. I want to hear it from you. Right. So when I do groups, I try to have things that are relative, that are at least outside of it, because I can speak to that. Right. So when I run in my stigma group, it's only two pages, a little like four or five little bullets or something. Usually I have about like five to six men, maybe up to 12. Right. I'll say, listen, I'm from Bridgeport. I know what the stigma feels like. I know what it's like to feel like, why did the town five minutes over to the left and the right? They have a higher education system when. And you know I me, mean? I'm a little like bougie and to extent, right? The Gemini in me. I always used to feel like, man, put me in the classroom with that kid. And let me see, let me just show you who performs better, right? Because I didn't want to be stigmatized because I'm from Bridgeport, then I'm not from this town on the left, this town on the right, then I'm not entitled to better education, for example. Yeah. Or, um, better equipment playing sports or updated books and texts and stuff like that, right? My school has a metal detector. Your school doesn't have any, like all these little messaging and stuff. And so I tell them that. And then what does that create? Familiarity, right? Mm. They looking at you like, oh, you're not just running this because, you know, you want to be the best counselor or talk about addiction. We being honest, right? I'm half Spanish, half Puerto Rican. I know what it feels like to be stigmatized and microaggressions and, and racism. So, right, when we put it out there, even my clients who may, may not have experienced racism are like, actually, you know what? Now that you say that, my cultural beliefs and my family, you know, I, I was born Catholic, but I really fell in love with someone who was Jewish and my family stigmatized me because they couldn't understand that I want to go through another walk of faith. And that, again, right, that could have an effect on their addiction. Right. It sounds crazy, but we're talking yeah. about what affects you. Right. So if you're constantly being told you're the addict, you're the this, you're going against the family values, what is that going to do to your self-esteem? It's going to create low self-esteem. How are you going to deal with your low self-esteem? You might pick up your habit. Right. But now that you understand, you know, it's okay to actually feel like you want to change your faith. It's okay to be from Bridgeport. It's okay to be the, the different person in the family, not the black sheep, just someone who might need a little bit more support from family. Ain't that what part of family's for, right? We need support. We need to learn. We need things like that. And it creates a nice foundation. Right. Newer therapists, and I'm generalizing, so I apologize, might feel where's that textbook that tells me chapter three is coping skills and chapter four is people, place, and things. And those hit too, don't get me wrong. But I've always felt if you're going to do this therapy stuff, you got to be yourself because clients can see through it. 100%. They can see when you're thinking about the DSM in your head and CBT, ACT, laying the letters, REBT, whatever you like to follow. 
100%. But when they see, like, hey, Luigi and talking to me in the community, like, like, he know me, like, almost like a friend. Like, obviously, you got to maintain a professional boundary. But people open up when you're just being authentic. Mm-hmm. And knowing the stuff doesn't mean you got to regurgitate mm-hmm. the kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so when I'm running groups, I, I try to make it engaging. Um, I'll talk sports, like, you know, for just to break it up. Like, because this is, you know, substance abuse. I tell, you know, the people that I work with, my clients, like, it sucks early on and stuff. It's... I'm cracking jokes. I let them call me an a-hole if they feel like that because it lightens up the mood. You just, for me, you're going to get through this. Let's make this as important and focused without it feeling like, man, you're going through a lecture right. for your time here because that, that's not fun. It's not fun. It's not fun when therapy feels like a chore. Yeah. You know, it's therapy is definitely one of those uh, fields that, your clients have to bring something to us. Yeah. Right. And that could be a major challenge. And it's, it's one of the challenges that I'm seeing uh, currently is, you know, we strive as clinical workers to, to to stabilize. Yeah. Right. We want to stabilize the main presenting problem and, you know, how, you know, and I'm just thinking like about the difficult clients and it's something that I've been exposed to early into the field. And it's something that throughout graduate school, they didn't really prepare us for. Right. Absolutely. So I guess my question is, and this doesn't even have to only pertain to your group work, but just your, your entire career of having clients that aren't really giving you much But what what do you do in that situation? Like, what is your approach? The ultimate thing, I think, from a new therapist, let's say newly licensed, fresh out of school, we'll we'll say new to someone who has some time under their belt is understanding success looks differently for everybody. I could have, let me try to think of maybe some of my in-home clients. So I had a, you're not supposed to say this, but I'll go on record. It was one of my favorite clients. Listen, by the book, you shouldn't have favorite clients, you shouldn't have favorite children. I'm going to say this. It is okay to resonate with certain folks. I never tell them I'm they're my favorite, but you might go not even an extra mile, but just look out for them a little extra and stuff, right? Not that I don't do the same for other clients, but you get what I'm saying. Like, yeah. So I think it's okay. This is a relationship business, right? Therapy, right. therapy you get to know people, talk about people. So I'm okay saying that this young girl at the time was my favorite client. Yeah. Um. So she had uh, severe, severe trauma, right? She was raped in the community at mm-hmm. like 13 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was doing it homework, so it was model-based. And so naturally she was doing it in school, bad, at, bad, quote unquote, not doing well at home, cussing everybody out, throwing hands at her mother and dad. So I'm going up in there trying to help her get her grades up. And it was so apparent that her trauma was the issue, Luigi, like, the dad started drinking. Mm-hmm. His whole thing was, how did I let my baby girl get raped on my watch? That was his thing. And rightfully so, right? He just, he was, he resented her because he he needed to blame. It, it, that was a hard pill as well. So he blamed her, that fractured their relationship. And she became more of a fighter. So she constantly had her dad, you, you, every cuss word in the book, right? And mom's somewhere in the middle trying to figure out like, 
I want to support my husband. In that case, they support my daughter. They also had another kid in the house who um, was a little bit younger. And um, I'm in there trying to get her to get better grades, bro. That ain't the issue. Right. So, when you know, you say, like, how do you measure success and how do you navigate those things? It's understanding sometimes you can't help people in the way that you want to help. And that's a very subjective experience. And you hear this all the time in therapy. Your mentors may have said it to you and anyone may be listening to it in therapy. You meet people where they are. Right? Yeah. Meet people where they are. Meet people meet, where they are. Yeah. yeah. They might have a raging issue and you see right through it. You know exactly what strategies to use. You know exactly how you're going to lay it out. And you know what they need in that moment? Housing. Right? You know what they need in that moment? They want to get the hell out of here and they want to end treatment. And in your head, you're saying to yourself, man, Luigi, you got so much potential. I see it. Then if you just switch this particular thing, but they ain't ready to do it or they don't want to do it. Right. And the other piece I'll add, and this is something I learned more so in the pandemic, people don't do what they want to do ultimately. And I'm saying that as someone who, who works in substance abuse, do I encourage my clients to use? Absolutely not. But do I understand that? If they feel that is their best option or they're not ready for treatment or they're in active addiction, for example, just naming three, that's the way they're going to function in their life. I'm not going to be able to come in hot and intervene head on if they're not ready. Mm. But that's not an indictment. It means therapist either. Right? Sometimes new therapists are like, man, you know, my, my clients aren't making progress. Sometimes the organizations put that on us too, which is a separate conversation. <laughs> that's another story. Um, yeah. Right. So it's easy to feel like I know my stuff. I got my master's degree. I got all these fancy letters. I'm specially trained in DBT, whatever it is, right? And feel like I'm not helping. But the reality is, is people got to want the help. Yeah. That's step one. And people got to be willing to hear the help. Step two, and are they ready to apply the help? Mm. That's therapy, right? Do you want to do this, right? Yes or no? Okay, I want to stop drinking, Sean. Are you ready to make changes to do that? We ain't talking about the changes yet. You know, yeah, you know, I'll hear you out. Maybe I'll make some changes. Are you willing to sacrifice friendships that you had so long? Because these are the people that you're drinking with the most. That's too much for me. And so they go right back, right? But ultimately, they're not ready. And so clients in private practice may not be ready for certain interventions in community settings and in-home settings. People have to be ready. And again, it's why I brought it out. It's human nature, man. Right? You have to be ready to hear feedback from people and take that feedback and be willing to apply it if you feel like it applies to you. Mm-hmm. Think of that from a mental health diagnosis though, right? Until you're talking about your trauma now, right? You, you have, who have got into a bad car accident, you know, five years ago, you can't get behind the wheel. You, you just can't get to that trauma. Are you willing to talk about it? Maybe. Maybe you talk about it at a surface level. Now I got into a car accident, I-95, exit this and this. And I say, what was your emotional experience? I ain't going there. I would still say the treatment was getting them to even talk about it in the first place. Because you know what? They probably didn't tell nobody else that even the exit that they got into the car accident. So it's retooling small steps can be treatment. Although for your treatment plan goals, right? And all that other stuff that comes with it on the, the documentation, all that stuff, the, the metrics and that stuff side of it may not feel like you're going forward. Understanding, I say this to my clients too. You showed up. You ain't even have to. It's a nice day outside and you showed up. I gotta be here. I gotta give a check and all that. 
you showed up, right? I'm sure with what you do in the community, you answer that phone call. Mm-hmm. You know what? That counts for something because mm-hmm. we, that's a choice. You chose to answer the phone. You could have ignored me, right? And you let me into your, into your house or whatever, you know, in the community we're meeting. You heard the five words I said to you today. I could say a hundred words to you, but only five matter, but you listen to me. Scale back your expectations, I would say, for newer therapists, because you never know when it's going to hit. It's like a lotto, man. You play numbers, you never know when that jackpot's going to come. I've had clients who come into the program at all, no matter where I work, focus, running, couldn't move one step forward because they came into it too focused, which sounds weird, right? You ever work with someone too focused? Mm -hmm. They so goal-oriented, the steps in the middle, like they just want you to the end. And I had clients who seemed the most disinterested in substance use come out and say, hey, Sean, you know, thank you for those groups. I got 30 days clean in my head. Like, you barely participated. You were asleep. But the entire time they heard what I had to say and other people too, not just me, of course. Um, and they clicked. And that's the name of the game, man. It's not linear. It's not. It's never linear. Linear at all. Never, never. And And the path to recovery will look different for each individual that you come across in this mm-hmm. field. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I'm seeing and I'm just, I can't help but relate as you're, as you're saying all these things, because you're actually popping so many memories in my mind of past clients that mm-hmm. I've seen mm-hmm. and even word, word verbatim. Um, there's times where, you know, I'll have difficult clients and maybe they don't show up this week but they'll show up the following week. And the first comment that I'll send to them is, Hey, I'm just glad you showed up. Mm -hmm. Thanks for showing up. Mm -hmm. You know, just show up. I'd like, if you want to talk about what you had for breakfast, then we're going to talk about Cheerios. Mm -hmm. Um, that's, and and that's just it meeting the client where they are. Mm -hmm. Right. And everything that you said was just so, um, I just want to say it resonates with me, you know, even, even the story with the client that, you know, we're not supposed to say that we have favorite clients. I have a, I have something very similar. Mm -hmm. Same thing happened. She was, um, she was raped at eight years old. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's, um, it's intense because, you know, just thinking back with that specific client that I did work with, um, we had a really good connection. Yeah. And at that point in her life, that's what she was looking for. Yeah. And I just want to say that it's definitely um, worth for new therapists to hear this. I know I have a couple of my colleagues. Um, we're all getting ready to graduate next month. Um, don't be congratulations, less. Congratulations. Congratulations. It's huge. It's huge. And I'm interrupting. Congratulations. <laughs> gotta, gotta get that in. Hey, thank you so much. I'm actually going to tell the listeners the story that I told you about that, I, that I'm going to talk about before I, I say this, but, um, my colleagues, and I'm, and I'm sure that they're going to listen to this. I just want to say thank you because they're going to value a seasoned LPC and all of these, uh, viewpoints and, your perspective on how to approach this difficult work. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, you know, the grad programs are excellent. They, they get prepared, but 
you chose this field for something in you, something about you, whatever that is, every motivation is different. You heard my nerdy ass answer. <laughs> um, but be yourself. I mean, like, and if you even struggle with that, this is the opportunity to do it. Cause you know what? Your client's going to tell you. Yeah. I've had clients tell me, speaking of that girl I used to work with, she used to roast me for my skinny jeans, man. You know, me back in the day, you know, skinny mini over here. So <laughs> little Abercrombie, I used to, she used to, and that was, that was a rapport though, right? Like some people like, yeah. you let her talk to you like that? Yeah. That would made her comfortable. Yeah. And unless I go into who you talking about therapist, you know, I'm a little fashion. If I take it personal, I'm losing that opportunity to then talk about what her grades, her behavior. Exactly. I didn't get to talk about her trauma, like how she did today. Right. Right. So people might pick on you in the substance abuse community. I'm generalizing again, like they love to do it. I, and I disclose everything. This is a, maybe another season thing. I'll be 31 in June. I tell my clients, I know they're older than me. I tell them I'm half this, half that. Now I don't tell them my address and other things, obviously, because it breaks that. Yes, I'm your therapist. We just talking, right? We got to talk about specific things. Of course, safety, in this case, relapse, substance abuse, you're taking your meds, da, 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 da. But people like the familiarity, right? So when you go into this field, you're going to feel like first client, even if I'm in private practice, right? A guy like me comes into your practice. So he's a therapist, some ther ther and therapist, see therapist, obviously. You might start to be like, oh man, he might know more than me. But I chose to treat me as a client. I'm, I'm, yes, I'm a therapist by work, but I chose to come to this room to be a client kind of thing, right? So again, it's that comfortability and you just develop it over time. Mm. Ultimately, if the, the caveat being you willing to look inward and say, you know what, to service my clients, I need to be more adaptable and be willing to hear a joke and be willing to be like, these jeans are kind of tight, actually, kind of hot in them <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and in other scenarios, because it, that's the work. Yeah. And you might not hit a single goal, Luigi, as you said. I'm, I'm sure that girl, not knowing anything about the case, what you taught her is how to be comfortable with a stranger. Yes. If she has sexual trauma, whether that's a family member, it doesn't matter. Right. How to be comfortable post-trauma with talking to someone. That's hard yes. work. And yes. so you might not have, that's not a treatment plan goal, right? You can't put that in a treatment plan because it needs to be empirical and measurable, right? <laughs> but that's a lifelong goal. You might have yes. that. Right. And you gave her the skills. You taught her how to be receptive in all the conversation. And so that's the other thing for newer therapists and even seasoned therapists is remember you're doing this to help somebody's life. Yes, you have all these things in your workplace. You need to do this, this, and this. Some of it is a lot. Some of it you have to do. Productivity sucks, for example. <laughs> um, but the real work, man, is just teaching people how to navigate their lives mm. in whatever way they need to learn. <sighs> just hearing that is, yeah. uh, you can't help but to feel that responsibility. Yeah. And it's only when you're within the treatment that you really go into, I guess, the, um, what, what clinical work are we really getting done? There's times, Sean, where it takes me about four to five months to realize like, wow, all she really needed was for me to teach her how to talk to a stranger. Mm -hmm. 
past traumas, past sexual trauma. And she might still suffer from anxiety. Right. But that life lesson right. can be carried on the rest of her way. Right. She may suffer from anxiety. And that's the stuff in the treatment plan. And you got to go to your supervisor and explain what's going on. Right. But sometimes the actual work is like, I actually showed up for one month worth of treatment on time. I ain't never been on time for anything in my life. And you hear somebody say that to you. And it's like that, that I go right to my boss, like, listen, they still got bad grades, but they showed up on time. Like, you know, what's going to happen. Your grades go away after a while. Your employer doesn't care about your grades. We're showing up on time. It's going to matter to your employer when you right. get a job. Sometimes that stuff that we don't get to reflect in our notes, in our documentation, in our, in our treatment standards, but from organization and work side is really what we're doing. And yeah. feel confident that if you help someone do that, that takes a certain skill set. Right. Not everybody can do this, folks. LCSW, no matter what your license is, human nature to human nature, not everyone knows how to convey that stuff. That's what you went to school for. That's what you, your passion is about. That's what your motivation is. That's what you're trying to do in this field. Right. So I can't say that enough, man, honestly. Yeah. And and just speaking about what we do in the field, um, I, I just wanted to uh, to really share a conversation that we've had. Uh, I want to say going two years ago. I don't know mm -hmm. if you remember this, but we went. I believe it was a phone call, and I gave you a call because I was under a dilemma, right? And the dilemma was. You know, I think at that time I, I just graduated with my undergrad, so I was a late bloomer and finishing college, but I, I got my undergrad at UConn and um, it was grad school time. And there was two options on the table for me. I was in the process. I was actually uh, getting ready for a couple of interviews with police departments, mm -hmm. um, state police, uh, Bridgeport Police. Another uh, great career path, too, man. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, New Haven, uh, you name it. It was just uh, a lot of options. Yeah. A lot of, lot of options. And it was what I was interested in, right? Um, obviously, I can't really tell what the future holds. No one really has the answers to that. But we had a conversation. And at the time, I was doing security work. I was uh, managing a corporate security site, um, seven, eight employees, 24 seven, um, working 70, 80 hours, 90 hours a week. Yeah. I did that man for six years. A lot of time. A lot of time. Um, and it was, I would never take that experience like away for anything. I mean, that job taught me how to communicate with anyone. Mm -hmm. Like I felt, unstoppable to communicate from the CEO of the building to the mayor of the city yep. would come right in and I would lead the charge. I would support the team, train the team members. Um, it taught me that I had a voice. Yep. Yep. Now I was under this, um, this dilemma where, you know, I don't, do I know any therapists, you know, I mean, I know going back to college, and this is how I decided to go the psychology route. I 
I said, what would be something I would do? I want to do something revolving business, but I also want to do something in the criminal sector. Mm-hmm. I also wouldn't mind being a shrink, but I don't know what that means. Like, how do I become that? Right, right. You know, fast forward, um, I give you a call because I, from what I'm seeing, you're on psychology today. You're, you're, this yeah, was around. Back, huh? <laughs> yeah, man. I'll, I'll tell you what, though, because it's like going back to where we are from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like black and Latino. Yeah. Latino. Less than 5% of Latinos hold master's degrees. Mm-hmm. Males. The other percentages are women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're a part. I will be a part of the 5% next month. You're a part of that 5%. Yeah. You made that success happen for yourself. Yeah. Right. And to say, are we supposed to be where we're at? I don't know. We're built different. And this is not on. Um, it's not like as a ego trip. It's not like as a cocky, uh, cocky a, standard or anything. It's a humble response and a reflection, truthfully. Right. It's just we're built different. So it's not, you know, people say it to sound cool. We're built different. Yep. No mediocrity. No. If you're going to do something, you're going to do something big. Helping people mm-hmm. is doing something big. Mm-hmm. Right. And breaking into this field. People are looking for therapists, clinicians, whatever you want to call yourself, social workers of color. That is a frontier that has blossomed post-George Floyd, some of those things, Black Lives Matter, not to get too political and stuff, obviously. Um, I have clients to this day that will say, I need a person of color. And this is no indictment on someone who's not a person of color. Everyone does great work if you're doing this field. But I want to highlight if you are considering wanting to help, but maybe medical isn't your route or teaching isn't your route or slash education, try this field out. I think it's something that as we talked about at the beginning, as we move forward with just expanding access and normalizing mental health, even those two words and you're going to start to hear depression, anxiety, possibly bipolar, just all these different things that people feel and stuff. There's going to be a demand post pandemic, particularly anybody felt anxious. I left packages outside for a day because I was worried I was going to get that anxiety right there. Right. So if as people from who are minorities, as people from inner city, you might find yourself working in an inner city population, which is not uncommon in the state of Connecticut. A lot of the jobs are there. Now there's jobs elsewhere as well. And you may say to yourself, I'm born and raised from the rural part of the Connecticut and there's no jobs for me. I gotta go work in these bigger cities and inner cities and stuff. That's another great learning opportunity because you're gonna finally learn about someone else's walk of life. And this field is fueled by one thing, empathy. Right. You can sit in a room with a Fortune 500 CEO or you can sit in a room with the most homeless person you ever worked with and learn just as much from either side of it. Um, So I'm huge on we need more. We need more people in this field that want to last for a certain amount of time. Nothing is forever, right? But 
minorities is particularly there there's a demand for you truthfully mm-hmm. and for our non-minorities there's a demand for cultural competency and expanding outside of our lens and a lot of non-minority therapists are, are phenomenal at that like i've learned a lot from non-minority supervisors who like this is how you should handle your black client who's a teenager and it's phenomenal work like that that applies right um it's growing man it's growing and there's a demand so listen six years you get your master's maybe a little bit longer depending um and you're gonna see more faces like myself like luigi in the field already coming into the field and there's a place if if you haven't heard it yet and professors haven't talked to you about it, there's 100 percent a place and that goes both ways right there are white clients seeking person of color therapists as well caucasian clients and european clients even who just want to hear from a different perspective and i know of african-american clients black clients we're very much okay working with a white woman who's uh, six or more successful than them, right? Or a white man. So everyone's looking for help. Just be adaptable and understand as a minority there, and I, I'm sure I've said this to you, right? We're needed in this field because a lot of our clients are a reflection of our background yeah. and yeah. familiarity. As It's like the name this episode, the familiarity episode, right? It might just that's be what it. we're talking about yeah. is familiarity. Oh, you know what I've been through? Oh, you know what it's like to lose two friends to gun violence? And if you're not ready to hear those things as a non-minority, expose yourself, right? Just just hear people's stories. You're going to hear everything. I've worked with white men and white women three times my age when I was in my 20s, hearing about their generational problems, like posts coming from the wars and all this stuff right back in the day. And working with those clients, same thing. You're going to be, you never know who you're going to get on your caseload, even in private practice, right? There's not, there's a little bit of selection there, but you can have me and Luigi walking to your thing and we the most disheveled people in your life, even though we look clean and all this other stuff. And you might have someone who smells and who just looks like a train wreck and they're the most composed person you've ever met in your life. So just be as adaptable and understand that. I can't say it enough. If you're a minority, consider it, right? It's right. worth considering. I feel like I have to, um, before we end this episode, and because we can definitely go another 60 minutes, um, I feel like I have to, now that we're finally in person, um, I have to show my gratitude towards you because you're, and I'm not saying this, um, to blow smoke or anything. I'm really saying this because it's genuine, right? Um, because you did something for myself at that time when we did speak about a couple of years back. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, and you know, we're not going to go into the whole entire uh, detail, but I feel like personally for me, my life would have looked tremendously different if I didn't go on this path. And you helped me make that decision, even if, you know, we may not, I mean, we'll always be good friends. Right. We'll always be close. Not to say, you know, I haven't met your wife. God bless your marriage. Um, you know, God bless your little girl that, that you just had recently. Shout out to the family. There you go. Shout out to the family. Uh, Sean's a 
Sean's been a daddy for a few months now. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, I just want to say that we'll always have that level of respect for one another. And absolutely. I, I made my choice. A lot of that choice and decision was based off of that conversation that we've had. I want to say each conversation that we've had. So thank you for that because it's, it's, it's not, you know, friends help friends, but when you're actually doing it and you're not like, you may not even be aware of the impact. Mm -hmm. Like this may be news to you, but when you're actually helping someone influencing them and then you see them make the moves that they're making, you got to give that energy back somehow. So the way that I see it is I just have to thank you for that. I appreciate that. I definitely remember the conversation and I'm going to actually steer it a little bit differently for a second. You see the effect that one phone call had on Luigi and, and in that case, at that time, making a career decision. Ladies and gentlemen, that's therapy. Two years ago, we had a phone conversation. I, knowing myself, spoke about options and what I think and didn't say, hey, do this, do that. Because I'm very much a, don't put all eggs in one basket. Think about what makes the most sense. Number one, sometimes financially. Number two, what are your values? Like, where do you see yourself, right? You want to do the 10-year plan, perhaps. If I go into law enforcement, where do I see myself in 10 years, right? Et cetera, et cetera. But that's therapy, right? He didn't call me for a therapy session, right? But look at the profound effect in that. And I'm not assuming that Luigi's a client in that example, but I just want to highlight that's the effect you're having on people, folks, right? That's the effect that, and you don't always get the gratitude letter, right? You, you don't always get to see your clients two years, three years, four years, five years down the line to say for them to be like, man, Luigi, you did so much for my life. And you can scratch your head like, well, who are you kind of doing? Oh, a lot of clients, right? Right, kind of thing. And that's what it takes, right? And I, more personal to you, like, you know, I definitely remember that conversation. Um, and you were stressed out because it was like you were choosing your next few years it felt like and going to grad school kind of meant getting away from law enforcement going to law enforcement felt like i'm not gonna postpone grad school and for what i remember and correct me if i'm wrong i said i think this feels the most adaptable if you know how to talk and listen to people tell me what job in the united states in this world where that's not a skill set that's needed and when we talked about law enforcement, it was at that time that's trying to establish the community stuff. How does a police officer enforce consequences and rules and arrest, but still maintain a relationship with the communication and, and the community? And it's listening and talking. Right. Obviously, in crisis, there's other scenarios and stuff. So, um, and that's how I approach therapy these days, like listening and understanding. Um the two most you're going to hear those skills in, in undergrad, you're going to hear those skills in grad, but truly being able to do that for yourself, for your clients, for your friends, for your loved ones, for your family, you name it, is really going to keep a natural fuel and fire through those burnout days when you feel like, man, I really should have been doing law enforcement. I make the joke all the time. You know what job sounds fun to me, Luigi? Making chocolate. You ever see somebody <laughs> get chocolates here? It's rolling out. That sounds fun to me, right? Yeah. I can eat it all day. Right? <laughs> so I say that to myself and I'm like, but you know what? 
I ain't going to be rolling out Godiva chocolate and I could be really helping people with some other issues and stuff. <laughs> so it'll help you okay. understand what you're doing this for. Yeah. And sometimes that runs out and it's totally fine. Um, and you want to do it in a private practice setting or a community setting, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's what it is, man. And I'm glad that you chose this path and it's worked out for you and you got a podcast. And that's why I said to you back then, I know you Luigi, you think of yourself as a therapist, you got to have a license, which you're almost done. Yeah. I always knew we talked about your fitness side of it. Yeah. How are you doing your media? So I always knew you were going to take the field and expand it to other areas. Mm. I know your previous guests, you're talking about Brazilian jiu-jitsu, right? Mm. So again, that's what I like. Like when folks come into it again, we're going to be therapists, but man, I'm super passionate about sports, right? right? Maybe I'm going to go work at the local high school mm. and help this app. So again, think about your interests because mm. at the gates, it's not fun. I didn't in home. The jobs are limited, unfortunately little bit better with the LPCA stuff and the pre-licensed stuff. Um, but think about what you want to do and what populations you want to work for, what interests you have, because there, there is an avenue where you can have a little bit of a perfect world job kind of thing. Right. It just takes some time, some funding, depending what you want to do to get there. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here first. Sean, any last minute thoughts, any last minute shout outs, any promotion for yourself? Yeah, I got nothing to promote, but, um, you know, if you're a newer therapist, I know Luigi said maybe some of his colleagues are getting ready to graduate. He can always link you to my socials. I don't do this professionally. I just work at, at an organization right now. Um, but I've always been big on this is a community approach, right? If people want to come into this field, come with your questions, come with your biases, right? Because you can make your early determination, do you really want to do this? And when you get too far into this field and you don't enjoy helping people at a slow pace, you don't enjoy certain things like the job feels like too much. You don't enjoy community base. You don't enjoy, you feel like you should be making more money, whatever it is, right? You can tease that out early on talking to someone who's been down the road. But on top of that, you want to go into this field with some level of doing it for a while. If you branch off from it, that's totally awesome down the line. But the mistake is, oh, therapy is easy to do. I just got to talk to people. I just got to tell them what to do. I just got to know emotions. And you're going to burn out so quickly because that's not what we do. Diagnosing sometimes what we do. Driving people to school sometimes what we do. Having tough conversations, right? Safety planning for a suicide assessment, that sometimes. And if you don't have that sort of drive or you're a little bit afraid, hey, reach out. You know, I'm sure Luigi would be, I have my permission to link people um, and I would encourage too, you know, it, voices matter, right? We're going to upload this yeah. at some point, but yeah. listen, this is fun to just talk and chat it up with Luigi, this platform, you know, reach out, come on the podcast. You yeah. know, people can, even if you're like, Hey, I don't even have my LPCA, but I just, why I think about mental health, you, getting the feedback from other people is important too. That's it. Getting that feedback and just join us. We are accepting guests on the podcast and I just want to say, Thank you so much for tuning in. Whatever you're listening on, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, guys, subscribe, leave a like, leave a comment, leave a rating. And Sean, it's been a privilege. It's always love, man. Always love. It's always love. I appreciate you always, man. Proud of you launching this. Hey. Congrats. I can't say it enough, man. Yeah. Hit me when you get the, the license. You know, that's big. I remember that feeling. Yeah. Um, 
you know, we talk employment and stuff. You're interested as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, what's out there for sure. Um, oh, we to your get, colleagues yeah. too. I don't know who you guys are, guys and girls are, but it's huge. This is what you did it for. Yeah. And put those letters after your name because that's what you did it for. That's LPC, it. LCSW, LMFT. You can have two licenses. Put them all. That's it. Because that's that's what we're doing. And a special shout out to all of my colleagues because we're almost there. And um, once you have that, they can't take it away from you. Guys, we've been all we, we, we've talked enough. <laughs> I think we've been uh, spitting too much game at everybody. Sean. We'll love to have you back in the future, man. Yeah, we'll figure it out for sure, man. We'll figure it out, man. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in, and we're out of here. Peace out. Peace.